0: You're listening to LabNotes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to LabNotes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today we're joined by Natasha Rawlings. Now an investment manager with the VC firm Uniseed, Natasha is on the front lines of Australian research translation, scouting research labs for exciting technologies in fields as diverse as agriculture, medicine, animal tracking, and road safety. For its part, Uniseed is an organisation that truly does blur the lines between research and industry. With funding and support sourced directly from institutional partners, including the CSIRO and four leading universities, Uniseed's expressed purpose is to ensure that promising research is given a shot at commercial success. Natasha considers herself an outsider to academia. But her expertise in entrepreneurship, marketing, and governance often fill an important knowledge gap for the researchers Uniseed selects, and she is a board member and non-executive director for several Uniseed-backed companies, including Wildlife Drones, Cuddyhab, and Foresight Helmets. Natasha Rawlings, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you. So, off the top, could you tell the audience a little bit about your role in Uniseed?
1: So as an investor at at Uniseed, I'm one of three, and my job is really to scout around our research partners and find the technologies that can be big businesses. Um, And so once I found that, I sort of manage it through the process to get to our investment committee do the due diligence to get to approval. And then once we've made or, you know, I've made the investment, I then manage it um, as a board member and hopefully take it through to exit, which is, you know, usually when we we sell the business in a trade sale and um, return monies to our our research partners.
0: So as you just mentioned, Uniseed is tied to these research partners. Um, Could you tell us who they are and a bit about the history of Uniseed as an organisation?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So we were formed about 20 years ago um, by three universities, and it's since moved to four universities and the CSIRO. So that's Sydney University, uh, New South Wales, uh, Melbourne, Queensland universities, and as I mentioned, the CSIRO. And it was formed to get technologies out of labs and into the world for impact. I mean, as you probably know, Australia is pretty rubbish at at doing that, the translation of research. Uh, And so it was a fund that was specifically set up for, for that purpose.
0: So there's an interview with you on the Uniseed website, and you say something that really struck me. It was that Uniseed goes where angels fear to tread. I wonder if you could elaborate on that, and perhaps tell us where you think Unisid fits in to the translation journey that a researcher or an entrepreneur might embark on.
1: Yeah, um, we really invest in a very, very risky area, which is high technical risk and also high business risk. So if you're an angel investor, and that means you're, you know, usually a high net worth you can drop a few grand and um, not have it hurt you if it it never comes back to you or is multiplied when it comes back to you, Um, you're called an angel. And so they typically help get businesses off the ground with seed investment, but generally they don't invest until there is a product built um, and there is some traction in the market, which means that customers are buying it. And so what happens with Uniseed investments for the most part is that they're really still raw technologies. Perhaps there's a prototype. We know the technology works, but there's usually quite a bit of work still to, to bring it to market and there's definitely no customer traction or customers buying it. And so that's where Uniseed really fills the gap in the ecosystem. We are early stage deep technologies. So there's definitely funds down the track when when things are a little bit more proven but just at that early bleeding edge of technology there's there's not a lot of uh, players there so I'm really proud that Uniseed fills the gap there.
0: Yeah absolutely and it's quite an interesting model I mean most universities have some form of university commercialization department but very few have access to this kind of in-house venture capital fund. Do you think it's a system that could be rolled out to all research institutions?
1: Well, I think you definitely have to club together with other universities, which is what UniC does. You know, we we would not see enough deal flow if we didn't have five partners just to have one university with one fund. I think it would be hard to make a commercial case for that because you just wouldn't see enough uh, strong technologies with great market potential every year. I would love to see more funds like Uniseed open up, but I think you'd need to have an umbrella organisation for the partners or for, for the investors.
0: Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to move on to your personal story a little now. You're somewhat unusual on the Uniseed team because you didn't come from an academic background. Can you fill us in on your marketing career?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I look very different. I mean, well, first of all, I'm a girl, <laughs> so, and science, um, unfortunately, at a lot of levels, is still quite male dominated. So, it, you know, it's it's good to be an example, I think, for for other women who who are interested in in science and technology, and even if you don't have that background, but yeah, I, I graduated with a business degree and um, majoring in marketing and I went to work in direct response, mainly publishing companies both here and overseas. And um, and that was really good background because I did a lot of product development and I was always bringing new products to market. I mean, I don't know how, I've lost track actually of how many products I've launched, but it'd be well over 100 and so it was all direct to consumer. It was all very numbers driven. And, you know, so I had control of a product PL and then a company p and um, you know, pretty early on and all through my career. So I really understood the levers that drive businesses, I guess, and did a lot of forecasting too of, of products and companies financially. So that, that was all really good background. And so I decided that I was going to go and form my own business and um, after having like a couple of tries at it, which, which weren't that successful in the first year or so, I got tapped on the shoulder by an old friend of mine who'd had two previous exits. And he said, oh, Tash, you know, there's going to be this convergence of um, retail and digital and mobile. Do you want to be part of it? Um, and I just sort of said yes. And that started my three-year journey in my own tech startup where I was um, founder and CEO. I gotta say overall it was you know a very brutal experience you know I lost a lot of money through that probably you know it's amazing my husband's still with me really (laughs) but I've got to say I would do it all over again. I had so many learnings and you know because I had to learn how to really hustle um, I sort of got to know a lot of folks here in the venture capital industry because at all at one point or another, I pitched to them or, you know, chatted to them at some point. I absolutely had no shame, which I think you sort of need as a founder. <laughs> and, um, you know, unfortunately it didn't work out, but it kept me in the startup game and I worked for other people's startups for a while, which was also interesting and, and lots of learnings there. But at the end of that startup journey, I sort of decided, um, I was through with it and I wanted to go back into corporate. And about that time, um, my boss, Peter Devine, the CEO of Uniseed, saw me at a function. And again, you know, this is creating your own luck and and getting out there and pressing the flesh. You know, he said, oh, we've got this position opened in Sydney. Do you want to give it a go? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And so that's how I got into Uniseed. So I'm still... I've now got my colleague Paul Butler here, but until about um, a year ago, I was the only person without a PhD and the only person without a very strong science background and and still am. But I hold my own weight because I bring something else to the table, which is, you know, quite a strong commercial discipline. And so I'm able to sort of bring a different lens to the investment committee and, and to the team.
0: So you mentioned your entrepreneurial experience a little there, which was the company Streethawk. But between that and your current role in Uniseed, I know you've had a few other experiences as a mentor and as a guide, including a stint as CEO of Head Over Heels, which is an organization dedicated to supporting female founders. Could you share your perspectives on how accessible deep tech entrepreneurship is to the scientists and entrepreneurs that also happen to be women?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Like to begin with, I remember saying to someone, oh, I don't really care about, you know, the plight of women (laughs) in tech entrepreneurship, because to be honest, in my whole career being in publishing and marketing, it's very, very female orientated. And so uh, I hadn't really come up against any sort of problems or issues because I was a girl. And Then going into being a tech entrepreneur, on the investment panels, there was never any women other than Michelle Deeker from One Ventures, and she was often the only one that you would see around the traps. Pretty much the whole audience would be blokes if you're going to a startup function. And for a woman, well, I found that quite intimidating, to be honest with you, going into a room of 100, 200, 300 men. (laughs) You know, I really felt like I stood out a bit you know, in pitch competitions and things like that, I began to count. And what I often found was that, if anything, there would be one in 10 of the people pitching on stage who was a woman. You know, a few people would say to me in functions, oh, what are you here to sell? And I'd be like, well, I'm the CEO of Streethawk and they'd feel a bit embarrassed. But, you know, it was was a real issue and it wasn't really being supported at all in incubators. Often the mentors are all men as well. And so it started beginning to really, to be honest, piss me off a bit, that no one seemed to be really caring about this issue. But there were organisations like Heads Over Heels who were forming to try and give women other opportunities to get out there and get in front of investors and get in front of customers and other people of influence, Um, and actually just to show people that women can do this. So in some ways, it was part of an education exercise. So... You know, when I left Street Hawk, a little while later I became the CEO of Heads Over Heels and, you know, that organisation is still going and they're there to create connections for women. Um, so whether you're in corporate or, you know, you're in startup, women have problems with, with their work network. So it was about creating a network that was, you know, helpful for your business and it, it had been really good for me in Street Hawk and so I took that on and I learned A lot more about gender and about being a woman. You know, it was probably the first time I came across this term called unconscious bias, which lots of people still don't believe in. And I remember when I first came across it, I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. But the deeper I got into it, I realised just how much unconscious bias we all hold, whether you're a woman and thinking about other women and men or, you know, people of different nationalities and it's the same of men and how that colours the way that you see things and therefore what your behaviours are around that. So, you know, it's something that I am still very passionate about um, and, Although I'm not really involved in those organisations, I sort of help out by being a mentor in deep technologies for the uh, University of Sydney's Incubate. I've been there for about five years now and also for UNSW's Founders Program. And um, I really love their new wave program that they have for for young female entrepreneurs there. So I, I tend to get involved in that from cohort to cohort.
0: So I think we got onto this topic of female representation because it's one of the ways you stand out in Deep Tech VC, but there's also another, which is the fact that you've come from this non-scientific background. Have there been significant challenges around communicating with researchers and coming to groups with the technical details of the projects that are pitched to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, all the time. First of all, it's a total privilege to be working in the space and, and seeing the technology I see. I always feel like I'm seeing the future You know, because I'm seeing things that are going to be in market 10 to 15 years on and and a lot of things still blow my mind. But really at the end of the day and, you know, when I I just sort of talk to, to scientists and researchers and just sort of say, look, when you're speaking to me, please don't talk to me only about your technology talk to me about the problem you're solving and who your customers are and why what you're doing is is solving such a big painful problem for them. So what I find quite often is I'm seeing a lot of solutions in search of a problem and quite often there'll be a complete disregard from researchers on the commercial side of things. They tend to think it's sort of quite easy to do and I've had quite a few researchers literally say to me, oh, you know, marketing, well, that's the easy bit. You know, I just have to build it and people will come. And really, it often takes a lot longer to commercialise one of these technologies than it does to actually invent it. You know, we just literally today are announcing HatchTech, which is one of our biotechnologies that, it, you know, kills head lice and eggs. In one pass, if you're a parent, you'll appreciate this (laughs) in kids' heads. So you don't have to do a second treatment and you don't have to use a comb. That took 20 years to bring to market. You know, I don't think Vern, who invented it at the University of Melbourne, spent that long coming up with the solution. So... You know, these things take a long time to get to market. And the other thing I think scientists forget sometimes, even when they're speaking to each other, it's really important to dumb your technology down so that everyone, including your mother, can understand it and really spend time making it come alive in other ways other than just scientific jargon.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that probably leads in quite neatly because I wanted to ask you, do you have any advice for young scientists, maybe someone who's just entering their PhD program, what they should do to ensure they build these skills if they're going to be angling towards a career in this research translation space?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Well, more and more unis are um, putting together programs now. Um, I'm doing one with the University of Sydney actually at the moment. It's all around, you know, sort of talking to industry and talking to folks like, like myself and, and what we're interested in chatting about. Um, I definitely put myself through an incubator program or an accelerator, you know, if you've got an idea or, you know, some of the pre-accelerator programs too, where they sort of teach you what sort of problems are interesting for investors and how to talk to them and all of that sort of stuff. And just generally, like, you know, talk to your mum, talk to your brothers and sisters about what you're doing and, you know, really look at their faces and see if they're understanding what you're talking about. You know, as a, as a PhD student, you're probably going to get sooner or later that there's not much of a career path for you because the people in the positions that you want are not going anywhere very quickly. And with more PhD students coming through, you know, it's in your best interest to look at what else you do with those with those skills. And, you know, forming a business, if you've got the courage for it and the heart for it, is is one of the most fulfilling experiences I think we can have as humans.
0: Well that's certainly an inspiring perspective for some PhD students to ponder on, Natasha. Uh, before we let you go, I did want to ask about one final area of your expertise in your role as a board member and non-executive director for several of the companies Uniseed has backed. What are your experiences with the boardroom environment and how helpful do you feel these oversight bodies are for deep tech startups?
1: Yeah, very, very good question. Um, I have very mixed feelings about boards for early stage companies. I did the comp- you know Institute of Company Directors course. And, um, you know, I think a lot of what they teach there is, I mean, a lot of it is about common sense, right? But I just feel that a lot of people, including myself, don't have a lot of common sense. So what people tend to do is apply a whole bunch of learnings for Australia's top 200 companies and apply it to everything. And really, with early stage businesses, you should just be concentrating on the product and on sales they're the two most important things because if you're not getting those right there will be no business and so what I find is that you know a lot of people come into these boards and they're just focusing the founder on the wrong things and the most important thing for a founder or a CEO of one of these businesses is time and if you're focusing on risk matrixes and board matrixes and all these things that are quite irrelevant to early stage companies you're just sending the company down the toilet very, very quickly. And so I find, you know, for boards, it's about having a really small team that complement the founder. You know, they don't have commercial skills. But if they're good, they will pick them up very quickly. I'm, I'm so lucky um, with businesses that I work with that they have really fantastic founders involved and they learn All the time about stuff that they don't know about and so you know their progression is quite swift just like any any CEO even coming from the commercial world has a hell of a lot to learn you know no one knows absolutely everything Um, and so if you can have board members that are really helpful are very hands-on won't have the CEO tied up in a whole bunch of stuff that they don't need to then they're effective boards but I find a lot of boards are really ineffective and um, you know, can be absolutely frustrating early on.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting perspective. Within Uniseed, you obviously have a role in creating these boards for startup companies. Has this knowledge that you've got changed the type of people you will approach to sit on a board or indeed when you even institute one for the companies that you fund?
1: Uh, Yes, yes and no. Like I said, they're quite small. I think the more independence you can get, um, the better. I think often the institute, and, you know, this is this is actually saying something about folks like myself, but, you know, sometimes we're not the right people to be sitting on a board, you know, when really not adding value. And um, and so I do think you've got to really make sure that you, you put people on who have got the right attitude, i.e. they're not going along thinking that, they read the board papers if they do that at all and throw in two cents worth of, you know, their opinion, you know, and that's the sum total of the value that they add to the business. Like I said, they've, you know, they've got to be people who are willing to get their hands dirty, think laterally about the business, help out where they can. And if they can't help, move back and maybe leave that position open for somebody else Um And so I think you've got to be quite ruthless with boards. You know, I recently had a conversation with a a really excellent board member who's actually probably getting very, very hands on (laughs) with the business and being super, super helpful. But, you know, it's not really responding to all the other strategic board stuff. And so, you know, I had to have the conversation with him, which was, do you still want to be doing this? I think you've got to be a bit confrontational. You've got to understand your power in these board positions and, really keep the best interests of, of the business ahead of your own quite often and I just think humans are really rubbish at thinking about something else other than themselves
0: <laughs> yeah well I guess I dare say the founders would be keen to have a boardroom full of diligent altruists um, before we go I did have one final question you mentioned your role at Uniseed exposes you to technologies that might be 10 or 15 years from market but also quite transformational should they get there Given that unique vantage point, I just wanted to know what your perspectives were on the horizons for Australian technology. Are there any particular areas of research that are exciting you?
1: <laughs> uh, look, you know, anything in the real world always interests me. So, um, although I've been in digital for quite some time, my father was a civil engineer and I spent a lot of time as a kid um, out looking at roads and bridges and pavements and, you know, understanding materials. And so, I get very excited when I see new materials coming to market, smart materials, nanomaterials or goods that are recycled and and made into other goods. I think that's that's all really cool stuff, so that excites me. Um, But the area that I guess personally is of less interest um, because I just find any sort of regulation just so tiresome that, you know, talking about party have and health overall, I mean, Australia could be very, very, very good at digital health. You know, we have the right conditions here to really foster some terrific businesses that will have worldwide impact. But unfortunately what we have is we have a culture here in in health and probably around the world which is very resistant to to changing things. But, um, you know, one thing we've got to thank COVID for, you know, is actually having rapid adoption of digital tools by the health sector. Um, And so that might actually change things in Australia's favour, bringing some great digital interventions and, and tools to market.
0: Well, yes, and I'm sure we're all hoping a COVID vaccine is among those fast-tracked therapies. Uh, Before we let you go, one final question that we ask all our guests is whether you have any book recommendations for the audience, anything that's inspired you about entrepreneurship or investing.
1: (laughs) You know what? I just find, you know, I'm the mum of two relatively young kids and I work full-time, so I honestly have no time to read but what I love is listening to podcasts, and so that's what I tend to do when I'm busy doing other things. Pretty much every week, I listen to This Week in Startups by Jason Calacanis. Um, he has the most extraordinary founders and investors, and heads of incubators and accelerators around the world, not only in the US. And um, I'm a bit of a, a free economics person, but. I also really love listening to The Economist. There's something that's free every week and they're looking at, you know, the American election at the moment, but they'll also look at issues and and problems around the world. So um, they're two that I can recommend, but no books at the moment, I'm afraid.
0: (laughs) Well, podcasts for learning on the go is definitely something we can get behind. Uh, Natasha Rawlings, thank you for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast.
1: Thanks, Leo.
0: Well, that's all we can fit into lab notes for this week we hope you enjoyed it if you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week lab notes is produced by eon labs in collaboration with brenny digital you can find links to both of those organizations along with our guest's biography and more in the description below our music is sourced from purple planet music and mixed by nat harris i'm your host dr leo stevens until next week keep inventing